Hello, happy Friday. Welcome back to the Life and Red Podcast, lifeandredpodcast.com, Life and Red Pod on Twitter, and Life and Red Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. If you want to come find us, follow us for the latest updates um, and episodes. And speaking of episodes, we have a new one, which is why you're listening to my voice right now. Um, my guest today, very interesting conversation. As a former hockey player, I still play hockey, but back when I played at a more competitive level, um, played a little bit of junior hockey, um, there was no secret that the, the culture around how we talked about um, women, how we talked about the LGBT community, especially um, using slurs against one another, uh, it, it was bad. Uh, I, there's, there's no way to mince words. It was bad, and it continues to be bad. We've made some progress, but clearly not enough progress has been made. And that goes into things like you know toxic masculinity. It goes into you know other just deep seated insecurities that uh, men and and in some cases women, but predominantly men have. My guest, we she studies it. She studied it for a long time. She got her PhD in along this field of, of things like masculinity and inclusion in sports. She's a fierce advocate for the LGTB, LGBTQ community, uh, especially in hockey. Um, has more recently transitioned into more uh, health and wellness, well-being for students, whether it be mental and physical. Um, and uh, she uh, is studying that now. She does a lot of amazing work, uh, and she's been one of my favorite Twitter follows just to learn more and just be up to date in what's happening in these communities, especially in hockey. It's a, it's a sport, you know, most of us love as Canadians that, uh, you know, I think it's important that we make it more diverse and inclusive and truly make the game for everyone. She's the Associate Director of Outreach at St. Mary's University in Halifax. She's also now a master's student uh, at the University of uh, New Brunswick. Lots of hockey experience, lots of knowledge, and just an overall amazing woman who I respect and uh, are deeply inspired by. So please give it up for my guest, Dr. Cheryl McDonald. Take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Welcome to Life in It's not often as I break my mic right off the first part here, uh, so that's a great start. <laughs> Cheryl, uh, thank you so much, uh, Dr. McDonald, thank you so much for joining me here today. <laughs> Thank you for having me. <laughs> um, now we got to go into recovery mode. Uh, but uh, uh, we, I said this on Twitter yesterday. I said this before we started recording. But one of my favorite people I've stumbled across the internet uh, and Twitter, um, just with some of the stuff you do and some of the stuff you put out, and especially when it pertains to like equality and inclusion in sport and, you know, some of the, the stuff you kind of talk about uh, occasionally, it just really resonates with me. So thank you so much for joining me. And I'm looking forward to this conversation. Thank you for having me. So um, you are, uh, you're in New Brunswick and you're studying. Uh, what sorts of things uh, are in your field of research? Um, and I guess uh, we'll get into kind of after that, how you got started in this and why it piqued your interest. 
Sure. Um, so right now I'm in New Brunswick. Um, I have a job at St. Mary's University in Nova Scotia, um, but I'm also a student at the University of New Brunswick in Fredericton. Um, and I am like at the, the tail end of a transition. So right now um, I describe myself as somebody, as a master's student actually, um, who's uh, getting into studying student athlete support and development at the university level. So uh, I'm interested in anything from how to transition them in and out of university to time management and, um, you know, things like talking about consent and maybe concussion prevention mm. and maintenance and, and things like that. Um, and, you know, academic performance and anything in terms of making, making their lives healthier and more enjoyable, making them better people. Um, but um, I also have a whole other identity where I did a PhD once in, in sociology and anthropology and I was a hockey scholar and I studied gender, sexuality and ice hockey for almost 13 years. Um, so, so really, I'm just a professional student, I guess. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so I, I mean, I have lots of lots of interests and, and a ton of life experience, I guess, came from from all of those things. But that's where I'm at. That's uh both incredibly fascinating topics. Um, one, the student aspect, because that is such a, a challenging time for especially young people when you're an, an undergrad and you just hear about the mental health struggles and, you know, we financials and economic, everything about like, it's just, it's a hard time for life. Um, and the thing that piqued my interest in, in our engagement on social media was the study of ice hockey and, and currently the journey I'm on. Um, with this this redefining masculinity but you know being in a I, I come from like junior hockey so like I know a little bit about that world um, junior B but like uh, you still get a, a sense of how incredibly misogynistic and uh, you know not a nice place all the time so well that's um, just it I mean some might argue that junior B is where your masculinity might be policed even more yes um, so yeah Mm-hmm. Um, what originally got you started in, in this journey through studying hockey through that lens? Because 13 years ago, I mean, it's much more a part of the conversation now, but 13 years ago when you must have been starting and getting into it all, like, I don't remember anyone really talking about that when I, and that's when I was like playing hockey as a young person. So like, what made you get into that? Yeah. And I mean, that includes me 13 years ago. Um, homophobia just wasn't really on my radar. And I'm, I try to be quite open about the fact that a little bit more than 13 years ago, I was still using anti-gay language and sexist language and all the same things that you heard in hockey culture and still hear. Like I, I was part of that. Mm. Um, I would say I stopped before a lot of other people, but, but still. Um, so when I first got into this, I was actually interested in hazing and violence. Um, I, I was dating uh, a guy who was just getting to a point in his hockey career where fighting was becoming normal, rookieing had been uh, taken up a notch. And those things really didn't um, compute with who he was off the ice. And playing girls and women's hockey, I didn't have those experiences. I didn't get into fistfights. Our idea of initiation was like adorable considered, compared to what the men were doing. Um, 
And so I was having trouble understanding why he was participating in these activities when they were so inconsistent with who he was. And we got into several arguments and I was frequently told I didn't understand, um, which was frustrating. Um, and it just so happened that around the same time, um, one of my professors had approached me in my sociology class and asked me to do an honors thesis. And I had no idea what I would study. I was in university because my parents forced me to, not really because I wanted to, but I was really good at gender studies that came pretty naturally to me. Um, and I said, I had no idea what I would study. And my professor said, well, you're really good at gender and what's something that interests you? And I said, well, hockey has sort of been my life. And he said, great, study gender and hockey. And uh, then it hit me that my own personal life had <laughs> had uh, already sort of steered me in, in that direction. And uh, I had a study. And so I interviewed, uh, I had done a comparative analysis of hockey and football uh, in terms of violence and aggression and hazing. Um, and uh, yeah, there weren't a whole lot of talks of, of homophobia uh, back then at all, to be honest. It, it's something that came up years later. Yeah, it. Uh, I, I go back calling someone the F word. Um, that was like a huge, like that was like thrown around multiple, like, oh my, like it was just such a normal part of the language. Um, I remember like saying things are like, that's gay um, until my brother eventually came out and quickly corrected me on that. Anytime I said it around him um, and it, it just, it, you're right. Like, it was such a, a weird place. And I go back to like some of those things that happened in the dressing room and I look back on how difficult it might have been to like speak out against it, even though you knew it's wrong, you get that like peer pressure to kind of like conform. And and I'm glad these conversations are happening now, uh, especially yesterday with uh, Luke, uh, I can't pronounce his last name, like coming out for being the first NHL player to um, sign to an NHL contract coming out, but it, we're, we're getting there. But what were some of the things you found when like analyzing especially between hockey and football and aggression, like what were some of the findings if, if you're able to even come to anything conclusive? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was a little baby study, but, but still, um, I think they made some points that have remained um, valid since then and um, that are, are fairly consistent. So uh, in terms of fighting, um, one of the main points was just the, the way that, the game is played and the equipment that they use is so different that um, you get your aggression out differently in football than you do in hockey. So, you know, for instance, they were talking about being on the offensive and defensive lines, you know, that is the equivalent of a car crash every 30 seconds. And you get that opportunity to, you know, to really pound somebody every 30 seconds to get that kind of aggression out or to tackle someone. And like, you know, that that's hard. Um, whereas there isn't that sort of systematic opportunity over and over to hit someone in hockey necessarily. I mean, we can argue that there is of course, but mm. it's still sort of different. And they also talked a lot about the equipment in terms of, you know, you're wearing what, like a 12 pound, piece of steel on your head. And so if someone were to punch you in the head, uh, they will break their hand. That's it. And that helmet doesn't just, you know, fly off as, as easily as they might in hockey and, you know, you know, things like that. Um, but also um, they talked a lot about the difference in size and demographic of a hockey team and a football team. So for instance, 
a hockey team has maybe 20 to 25 people on it. Um, they're usually all white middle-class folks. Um, they have more opportunity to become closer because there are so few of them. Whereas on a football team, you might have anywhere from 40 to 80 guys and they might not all be white. They might not all be from the same socioeconomic status. And um, it's easier to sort of find your home on a football team and find like-minded people and not be expected to um, have this one weird share, shared worldview, mm-hmm. uh, as you might on a hockey team. It's not mm-hmm. quite as much of a, a family environment, as they call it, uh, as it is in hockey. And so it's easier to, to be yourself because, A, in football, you usually already show up being slightly different uh, from everyone else. And then, you know, there are so many of you that you can find your own little niche, whereas in hockey, everybody tends to show up looking and being pretty much the same. Uh, and then their bonding strategies for one, you know, one core group tend to result in, in shared worldviews. And um, I think group mentality ends up going a long way in that situation, whether it's taking hazing too far or violence or, um, you know, the idea of how to be a socially acceptable masculine man in hockey. Um, I think everything kind of gets more amplified in that sport. Yeah, I go back. I played in a small town too. So we all not only like we grew up together, we all went to school together. Our parents were friends. We yep. hung out like like you like the, that family dynamic makes sense. Um, and as you got older and, you know, the hormones start flowing and you're you're right everything just kind of gets amplified to a new level and one person does one thing and it's like everyone kind of raises up right when it comes to like and i don't even know if this is your area of expertise so if if it's not that like that's fine but <laughs> sure when it comes to like men versus women because effectively with like only a few rule changes we're playing the same sport we're wearing the same equipment yeah why do we or, and maybe I'm wrong. I've never been in a, a woman's dressing room, but why, like when it comes to like this group dynamic, why does it seem men tend to go in this very much more toxic route in, in a lot of cases, no, obviously not every case. Whereas I don't know when I at least see women, the women's game, it just seems a lot more respectful and, and leadership and, and everything. Like, is that a biological basis of it? Like what, what are some of the things if, if you have any insight on that? Oh gosh, I can tell you that um, I definitely failed the first year of my science degree, so I can't tell you a whole lot about biology. Uh, <laughs> but uh, having been in a women's locker room myself, um, I mean, I think uh, first of all, women sometimes have a tendency to police each other in different ways. Mm. Um, I mean, there there was lots of talk still about about who was straight and who was a lesbian and whether you were femme or butch or, you know, like there, like there were still all these different ways of talking about each other and, and, and showing those differences between each other and which group you fit in and which one you were acting like and all like that all still happened mm-hmm. with the women for sure. Um, however, um, I think that because women like first and foremost, I think that because 
women are taught empathy more often from a young age and are encouraged to communicate more and to show emotion more. Um, that meant that we were less policed in terms of who we were in the dressing mm -hmm. room and um, amongst each other. Um, and also I think too, that because hockey was essentially built for men in Canada that like that, you know, there's, there's lots of research that shows that it was a sport to help develop young men, um, into respectable, you know, young adults in society. Um, it's almost as if society didn't care as much what happened to women while they were mm. playing it. Um, and so like, if you were a lesbian, fine, as long as the men weren't gay, heaven forbid, <laughs> like, um, so I just, I think that the girls are socialized differently. Um, I think they have more leeway in, in terms of being who they are. Um, and uh, this is how we end up with men who feel that it's just not okay to be who they are because that's what it boils down to, right? Is emotions um, and, and whether or not you're happy with who you are. And I think in men's hockey, everybody involved, especially at the top levels, um, spends so much time communicating to you that it's not okay to be different. And this is, this has been like the theme coming out of my, the last research that I did is like, it kind of doesn't matter if you're gay, if you are injured or concussed, if you have drug and alcohol addiction problems, mental health problems, if you have been a sexual abuse victim, if you're having marital trouble, like it doesn't really matter like what flavor of ailment it is um and not that being gay is an ailment heaven sorry that's not what i meant but um but you're some sort of distraction or you have some kind of baggage in other people's eyes and there's somebody coming up behind you that has your skill set and doesn't draw that extra bit of attention uh that will probably take your job and so i think um yeah, the, the stakes are just higher on the men's side. And I think they're, they're also higher um, in terms of opportunities to play and income. Um, women don't have the opportunity to make millions of dollars um, or to have a full career that might end when they're, what, 35, if, if they're lucky to make it to that age. And so um, I think there's just different kinds of, of pressure that you don't see in women's hockey. Right. Yeah. I think of like people like PK Subban. I think of people like Robin Leonard. I mean, PK Subban is a great hockey player and he gets tossed around team to team to team because he's very flamboyant and outspoken in the media. I think of Robin Leonard who couldn't get a contract other than one year because he was going through his battle with bipolar and, and alcohol wow. and addiction. And, and the thing that irks me is every time there is a player in the NHL specifically, who comes out a little outside of the norm. And that could be something as minuscule as fashion. Right. It could be uh, to something more like whether you're coming out or whether, you know, w public with your mental illness, that so many people, including the fans, like cut you down tremendously uh, and like just chastise you and criticize you. And it, it's yeah. like, and then we have to celebrate these people as like these super courageous adults, which in a sense they are, but like dealing with what most of us are dealing with in a, in a lot of sense, it just, it, it makes zero sense to me and frustrates me to no end. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I think, especially from a fan perspective, um, for some reason, like 
we forget that they are human. <laughs> yeah. And and yeah, sure, they make a lot of money and and certainly yes, if if you know, we feel that they are entitled to that money and that they need to work hard for that money, then yeah, um you need to be able to put your body and your mind through a lot because you get paid a lot, but at the same time that doesn't excuse tearing someone down for not being okay. And mm-hmm. I think, I think that's a society wide problem is a lack of empathy and a lack of compassion. Um, I see, I see it not just in hockey. I see it in politics. I see it around matters relating to public health, for mm-hmm. instance. Um, um, I think we have so much trouble putting ourselves in someone else's shoes or even trying um, that we, we end up just putting them down. Um, and I think that probably comes from a place of our own insecurity. I think, we don't like the idea of us being vulnerable and, and therefore we end up taking that out on someone else who is trying to be vulnerable. Especially social media where we're able to mask in a lot of senses to be completely anonymous in other cases where the consequences of our actions aren't always going to be reciprocated. So we're able to call out people more than we would be able to like face to face and show some of those insecurities and anger and f- sadness and frustration, depression. Um, and it makes it really sad through the, I mean, so that's like your undergrad beginning of your research, but how did your career in this research evolve? I mean, getting a PhD to, is an incredibly amount of long time and a lot of school. Uh, so you've probably done a lot of research. So where did this kind of like take you? Um, I've never been an academic, but I'm sure that it's like you find out maybe one thing and then it kind of, oh, well, let's follow up and like lead down maybe this like certain road of where your research is going. So where did that time take you? Yeah, you hit the nail on the head. So um, my little hazing and violence study revealed that basically both cases, no matter how different they were, were about proving yourself as a man. Mm. They, they were about proving your masculinity, um, both hazing and violence at the end of the day, that's exactly what they were. Um, so I went on to a master's degree and hockey was my sport. I was more interested in hockey. So I talked to a, a major junior team. I did surveys and interviews and just asked them like, what does it mean to be a man in hockey? Like, what is it about manliness that is so special in hockey? And, um, the biggest thing that came out of that was the stereotypical image of a hockey player. And, and it was fascinating for me because right before my very eyes, they painted the exact picture of what back then gong show gear, hockey apparel was touting as, you know, the proper image of a real junior hockey player mm. uh, and, and getting their input on it is what was fascinating because there were some that like thought it was hilarious. There were some that thought it was inaccurate and giving them a bad name and a bad reputation. And my favorite was the small handful who didn't really know that that image existed. um, Could not point to teammates of theirs that they felt embodied it. And as it turned around, as I, as I like circled back around through the whole team, you know, the small handful of players who weren't aware of this, you know, generally accepted gong show image of a junior hockey player were the ones that their teammates felt embodied it the most. So like they were so deeply entrenched in like pretty much being a gong show gear hockey player uh, that they had no idea that they were the stereotype. Um, And it like 
that from an like an academic perspective was fascinating um but yeah it uh so that was the end of my master's um i still do work on that i mean gong show has i find they've changed their marketing a little bit and and they've they're certainly less problematic in my opinion um but but yeah that it was fascinating um and then i got to my phd I didn't, and a PhD is four years. Like you have to find a topic that you care about that you can study for at least four years. Some people take five or six years um, and, and that you're not going to get tired of. And I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I was actually accepted to my PhD to study rep- representations of masculinity in the television shows, How I Met Your Mother and Big Bang Theory. Oh, wow. Yeah. I started off as a gender scholar technically and, and not really a sports one. Um but uh, anyway, I ended up on the phone with George Laroque, the enforcer mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. Montreal, Edmonton. Uh, and um, just for fun, I said, I'm, I'm studying masculinity. And if someone had four years to do that in hockey, what would they look at? And he said, you need to find out why it's not okay to be gay. You need to talk to the younger players and figure it out. And he said, there are gay men in the NHL. Um, so figure out why it's not okay. And that same year, the You Can Play project had started. Um, and like, despite it not being an interest of mine at the time, to be perfectly honest, I didn't have a ton of gay friends and certainly not gay men in hockey. Those sort of just didn't exist back then for the most part. Um, and, but I knew it was going to be important. Um, and that's how I got on to, to that subject. Um, and it just mushroomed. I mean, you, you know, you don't have to look far for the evidence that, it became a big deal over the years. And, and so to fast forward, um, you know, it landed me at the University of Alberta doing a postdoc where I got to be a media panelist with the Oilers talking about inclusion. Um, I got to be co-chair of the Canadian Western Board for the You Can Play project and, and was helping lead Olympians and NHL players and pride parades across the country. Um, so, you know, it, it turned out to be a really wonderful experience. Um, but I mean, and we can get to this later if, if you want, but to, to cap off my story, um, it eventually led to me being burnt out by hockey culture. Mm. Uh, so yeah. Yeah, definitely going to touch on that. But I, especially the timing of this, which so interesting enough, we, we see the first, I say the first NHL player, because obviously there's people who have been gay and never been out. And there's also tons of professional gay hockey players who are yeah. already out. Um, one of one of which who I really respect online is Brock McGillis. Um, it's a very important voice that I, I really follow on issues like this. But just uh, with the announcement yesterday, as we record this, I, I look. I think back even when I was playing, um, I stopped playing like in t- 2010 when I turned 18, and then I okay. went on to beer league. If you asked most of my teammates if they would be okay with a gay player, I feel the majority, if not all, would say, yeah, I'd be okay with that. And I think if you asked each person individually that if, would you be okay with that? I feel, I could be wrong, that most people would say, oh yeah, we would totally support a gay teammate. But something about that culture, something about just it as a whole, like doesn't make it seem okay, even though on an individual level it would seem most people would be okay with it. So when you really started getting into this subject and asking people about, you know, this this topic especially players and why it's okay or why it's not okay what were some of the things you were you were hearing and and finding in your in your research 
Yeah. So, I mean, the bulk of my research on this was done with major U18 athletes. I, I worked with about 120 of them during my PhD. Um, after that, I went on and spoke to openly gay athletes and former NHL players, um, but fewer of them. So, um, but with my, my major U18 athletes, um, it was a little bit all over the board, which I appreciated because I think I got honesty out of them, which I mean, hockey players are taught to sanitize what they say. They, mm-hmm. a lot of them have media training. A lot of them are told, you know, what you say, what you say in the dressing room is fine, but don't say it outside type thing. And I, I think they were honest with me. I think the ones who didn't understand um, LGBTQ identities said that. I think the ones who disagreed with those identities said that. And I think the ones who really didn't care and were perfectly fine with it also said that. And um. I appreciated it because I think, it, you know, like you said, when you ask someone if they're okay with it on the surface, yeah, they're okay with it. But then behind closed doors or when actually confronted with the situation, how okay are they? Mm. Um, and so they, like, they bless their hearts. They like, you know, for, for kids who were sort of like most of them 16 and 17, they were really good at being like, but Cheryl, what happens in the shower? And Cheryl, like, what happens? Why is this different from letting a girl into the dressing room with us? And and I didn't always have answers for them, but I really, really appreciated that they were willing to engage in that with me. Um, whereas with the, the gay athletes, um, it really depended. The ones who had come out to their teams had pretty good experiences where, for instance, uh, the use of the F word in the dressing room, for instance, stopped by like 99.99% mm-hmm. And the 0.01% was followed by a pretty quick apology. Um, Or, you know, on the ice, if the gay teammate was being bullied, especially for being gay, uh, they were defended in like imminently. Um, And, you know, conversation also um, became more normalized where, uh, you know, I, I had this one athlete who said that, at first it was sort of weird because all of his teammates were talking about girls and women and leaving him out of the conversation. But eventually they sort of opened up and figured out that they could be like, well, wait a minute, what kind of guy is your type? Like they'd be at the mall and be like, so like, who's attractive to you? Are we attractive to you? Like, tell us about you. Um, And it became like a bonding experience and they included him and just understood that he had different preferences, obviously, but that was okay. And they could still talk about it in similar ways. Um, And then like the former NHL players that I spoke to, I mean, some of them, you know, one of them was, I think, 35 at the time. One was in his 60s. He was a Hall of Famer. He spent 18 seasons in the league. So different points in life and and different eras in terms of, of, um, you know, how society treated it. But um, the, the former NHL players were most interesting because um, I found they were also fairly honest in terms of like, oh, it's okay if you're gay, but just don't talk to me about it. Like, there, you know, there's no room for that. Or they would say, uh, for instance, one said you, the players aren't going to have a problem with it, but a coach or a GM will have a problem with it because they're going to see it as a distraction mm-hmm. in the dressing room. Um, or again, the players who were like, no, like my best friend's gay. We went boating last weekend. They had the best gay wedding ever. Like this isn't a big deal. Um, so it like, certainly lots of progress over the years. Um, but, uh, opinions are, are definitely still sort of all over the board. Interesting. Um, and it's so funny that, 
you know, this is only on the conversation of, of just gay athletes. Right. I mean, we're not even speaking about trans athletes or other people who identify maybe as non-binary or gender fluid, like however you self-identify, we're still not even at the point of like, just like a gay person playing a professional sport. People are like, it's it's like sports is here and the rest of society is like up here. And like, it's like, it's, it's always something to be celebrated. We're making the right steps, but it's amazing how far behind we are in terms of like the world of sport and accepting different identities into our teams and dressing rooms. I agree, which is like, it's ironic in some ways because sport has so much ability to mm-hmm. set precedent and to provide role models. And, you know, we get a lot of our social messaging from sport. Um, it does become political when you look at something like the Olympics, you know, when it comes to national unity in Canada. Uh, but at the same time, all of a sudden, when it comes to to these identities, um, we're so far behind in terms of inclusion. Um, so, yeah, it's it's something that keeps me up at night sometimes that we can be so far ahead, yet also so far behind. Yeah, and the, especially the power of how sport really unites us in this common goal, right? You can have, fa- at least from a fan perspective, you can have all sorts of different backgrounds and and people rooting for the same team to win the cup or to win the champ, whatever the the sport is, it has that ability to unite us. But then you have, you know, especially the NHL, which is like just the worst organization in terms of including, like they won't even say black lives matter. It's like really like come just simple things like that. But then they're like trying to like promote diversity. And anyway, it's just like, that's a whole (laughs) podcast in itself of me just ranting about how much they bug me. But I think I think the the common denominator here is control. Right. I think that the NHL likes to be in control of situations, in control of their reputation. They want to do things their way. And as much as they take lots of wonderful advice from folks because they like to try to to put stuff back out through the channels in their own way, it just doesn't come out great. And I think that has been the case with queer inclusion. And I also think that was specifically the case with the Black Lives Matter mm-hmm. stuff, because it was like, now, now's not the time to put your own spin on this. <laughs> uh, but that's, that's what they like to do. They want to do things their way. And um, that doesn't always come out great. Yeah, I mean, clearly run by lawyers um, yes, <laughs> from New York yeah. City, right? Like, it's, yeah. everything about it is is like that. Um, when it when it came to your research like this, and and I know I'm not trying to put you on the spot of speaking for the queer community, but were you able to come up with like some concrete, actionable steps in terms of how we could make progress? a little bit like faster in terms of things that we can do without relying on things like the NHL to kind of like save us and lead the, the, the path forward. Absolutely. I mean, um, the main thing that I got was that anti-gay language had to stop. Now the extent to which my research participants were offended by anti-gay language was different, mm-hmm. um, but they all agreed that we might as well just get rid of it. <laughs> um, so, so you know, that was one major commonality. Um, and then it sort of differed. So um, there were some folks that uh, felt that education was key, some who felt that visibility and awareness was key. Mm-hmm. Um, but I um, and that's the thing. It, it's it's a little bit hard for me to say because I spoke to mostly straight white dudes. Mm. Um, so 
you know, in terms of, I think I only had six gay participants that I know of that, you know, that were open to me about the fact that they were gay. So um, I actually, if anything, to answer your question in a more meaningful way, it's not my research that has actually um, provided that answer. It's Mm. my activism. So despite having left my research behind, I, I hung on to my activism because Brock McGillis, um, who we've already talked about, mm-hmm. has become one of my best friends. Mm-hmm. And it, like research or not, it was so important to me to help Brock do what he does. And and through that, I I found so many more friends in the queer community who love hockey or who had perhaps left hockey because they didn't think it was mm-hmm. safe. And and so it was still important to me to to hang on to that group and and help make the world a better place for them. And uh, they talked about having sustainable community. And, and for the exact reason that you brought up, if the NHL isn't going to adequately help us, we're going to do this ourselves. And so for them, you know, there was a resounding um, wave of we need like a group of people online and or in person that can be our friends day in and day out where, where we can talk and, and relate and have support and things like that. So I think that'll be the next thing that you see come out um, from activists is um, a group that really every single day of the year is um, creating space for queer folks in hockey to make it their own um, without the NHL. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mentioned Brock cause he just, he's so outspoken and I'm sure there's yeah. a lot more. He's just one of the ones that like kind of always came across my feed um, learning about things like Chick-fil-A and sponsorships. Like I never would have, even thought about that but by following him you start to learn about those things so that's why I think it's so important absolutely not even just speaking about like the LGBT community but like women um and and black people and indigenous people uh coming into the hockey space and making it more inclusive for them you know black girls hockey club is one of my another favorite follow I think about the the broadcast um out of uh, Vancouver who just have a wonderful podcast, but, and it's just about being women loving hockey. Right. But they also speak on these important, you know, more um, activist social justice type topics when it comes to hockey. And even like when sometimes it's like, especially as a straight, straight white man, some of the things are a little bit like hard to hear at times because you're like, Oh shit. Like I definitely done that in the past. Um, You know, it's just, it's so as much as Twitter is a complete dumpster fire sometimes, like I have found all these people, you through this platform to just broaden my own understanding on how I can be a better ally when it comes, especially when it comes to sport. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I have certainly learned that um, you have to take and leave Twitter sometimes, especially um, I, I used to place too much value on Twitter and the, the people who were on it. Um, because every single time I was criticized, I took that seriously because as a straight person and in a queer space to me, if somebody's calling you out or criticizing you, you take that seriously and you Mm -hmm. value that. Um, I learned that that was a good way for me to burn out real fast and to get conflicting information. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) and, and that makes sense, right? Not everybody's going to agree on, on what good allyship looks like. Um, Mm -hmm. so I had to navigate that and that's hard, but uh, there's no question that there are so many wonderful people on there um, that I never, ever would have connected with like you, um, especially talking about mental health. Um, you know, Twitter was one of the first places that I felt safe mm-hmm. talking about my mental health because I was in a hockey community where it wasn't really okay. <laughs> um, 
so no, that like that has been so great. And I was on the broadcast pod um, a hey. few weeks ago too. Um, we had a, a great talk about about hockey and um, how to make it better. And and yeah, it it is possible to find your home. To you know, I don't I don't really like saying find your tribe, but that seems to be the the way people are putting it right now. And um, it's just yeah, sometimes your 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 group is hard to find, but they're out there. Yeah, I completely agree. Like the mental health community on Twitter has been nothing but amazing and supportive and it completely has changed my life. But talking about burnout, like I did the exact same thing when all these conversations really started to take form a couple of years ago. It was a lot and it's a lot to dissect. And I had to like go back to therapy after years off to like try to like sort my way through everything Mm -hmm. and really figure out how to not internalize this and decenter myself from the conversations. I want to talk about this burnout because when we first connected, that was one of the first things you you brought up. Yeah. So, I mean, academia, I know I have friends studying for their PhD and doing the research and they talk about how difficult that is. Like, how did you reach this point? And how did you identify you reach this point? Because it's one thing to like be going through it and you're trying to like, like sort your way through. Mm-hmm. Um, and you just try to push forward, you know, grind, blah, blah, blah. But like, how did you recognize you also reached that point? Um, I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to dive right into it. I, I, I had a, a pretty uh, important moment. Um, and it, like, this is where my, my trigger warning comes, but um, to, to just like rip the bandaid off, I, I had a time where I wanted to end my own life. Um, and I was, I think I was 33 when that happened. Um, and it was in that moment that I was like, you know, the past 33 years have been a struggle and I've spent a lot of time blaming it on other people. And I mean, I can, I can certainly blame lots of stuff on other people, of course, but, um, it was the first time that I looked inside myself and was like, okay, so I could literally kill myself or I could start really unpacking what's going on inside of me because clearly there's you know I I had always been a mental health advocate I had been diagnosed with depression during my PhD I was super open about that um but like something still just wasn't right and I I, like it was a, a romantic relationship that had led me to to wanting to to just give to like pack it in and and leave this this world um which was unfair to me. I, I mean, I had a, a romantic partner treat me quite poorly, but uh, at the same time, it really motivated me to look inside. I had already been in therapy, but it sort of wasn't clicking. And um, what ended up coming of that is realizing I had no emotional intelligence. I had, a, I had a whole life of not understanding how to regulate my emotions, not really understanding how to have empathy for others, despite having done all this research on the queer community and supporting them. Um, I just, I just didn't get it. There was, I, I was just missing something that to make me a better human. And, and, and I had no self-confidence. That was something I didn't have since the time I was very young and in the hockey community, especially the men's hockey community, as you know, kind of exists to crush your self-confidence to begin with. So if you enter that space without any, you're toast, which is exactly what I was. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we like, I'm going to leave it there just because there might be different directions you, you want it to go in. But, but that was my, my wake up call was, it was like, either I leave this planet or I find some other answer for the fact that I've been miserable pretty much all my life. 
I I went through a similar thing, but like very young. Like I tried to take my life. I, I made the attempt when I was 21, where I like same thing. Like no real emotional intelligence and in, and in recognizing all the different things. And like from that point, that's where you start to pick it up and you learn it. And you, I mean, that's just been a, as I'm sure with yourself, just a complete journey of the last. Oh, yeah. What am I? 29. So the last eight years of my life has just been trial and error of learning all these different things uh, about my life and who I am and, and constantly figuring out. And it's been greatly accelerated this past year with the pandemic okay. and going through a breakup and just being alone with no one else. And you can't see anybody, you know, we really had to go through that, that journey. Yeah. And I call I like, I, it's, I think it's kind of cheesy, but it's also true. Like I call it like my, my healing journey, like my wellness healing journey yeah. type thing where I'm on this path. So when you came to this realization, you're like, okay, you know, Cheryl, I need to, we need to get better. We need to start doing the work. What was like the first step and what were some of the things you took on upon yourself to, to effectively try to heal? Uh, yeah. So it like, it was all, so I'll elaborate a little bit more because it, it was such a messy story, but it would have taken way too long to tell it right off the bat when you asked me. So, uh, I, so I also went through a breakup. Mm. And that breakup um, motivated me to seek therapy because the person that I had broken up with, I didn't want to lose. Um, mm. And they told me I was a bad person. And when the person that you love most in the world tells you that you're a bad person, you probably believe them, <laughs> especially when you have no self-confidence to begin with. Um, I had been really good at faking it. I had been really good at taking out my insecurities on other people, which made me look very confident and powerful. That was not the case. Uh, inside, I felt like garbage. And so when someone finally told me I was, um, and it was like, okay. <laughs> and I had been to therapy before for an eating disorder, for depression. Um, and so I thought, okay, like my answer is always go to therapy. So I went to therapy, wanted to learn to be a better person. Um, my therapist and I also was still struggling with my eating disorder, of course, and depression. <laughs> and uh, my therapist just started like rifling psychology books at me <laughs> and was like, just read all of these, read them and let's talk about them. And um, I'm still doing that. He's still sending me books and I'm still going in to see him. But um, emotional intelligence is what I learned I did not have and empathy. I had none. Um, and after a year of working on myself, but working on myself to please someone else, to please that former partner, because he hung around for a whole year and would say things like, yeah, you keep going to therapy and maybe you'll be good enough for me and we'll get back together. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and I wanted that so badly and was so fixated on him that that's what I tried to do. And, and finally there came a time a year later where he said, um, actually, I have lied to you for the past year about who I have been with, what I have been doing. Also, you're still not a good person. Uh, oh my goodness! And and like he had he had taken up drugs and had been with several other women that he like very conveniently didn't tell me about, and um, and also said that he hated himself because I had been begging him to go to therapy with me, uh, and he said he didn't have it in himself to do the work that I had been doing, uh, and that my work hadn't really proven to be all that great anyway. And so why bother? Um, and that was when I was like, I like, okay, I've put in all of this work and this is what I've gotten. So I'm just going to leave the world. 
Um, but um, luckily, I took that as a sign to start doing that work for myself and not for someone else. And that's when it really clicked in that, you know, yeah, I had spent a year learning emotional intelligence. That's great. I had learned empathy, but I hadn't learned to love myself still. And um, that's when it all changed is, is when I decided to start or continue, I should say, continue doing that work for myself and not for somebody else. And that has changed my whole life. Um, understanding, you know, I don't like to say that you have to love yourself before you can love someone else. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, uh, if you are existing in the world constantly with, you know, negative cognitive distortions, with a lack of self-confidence, um, with lack of empathy for yourself, if the hardest person, if you're the hardest person on yourself, like you're, you're going to be miserable and that is going to permeate your interactions with others, whether romantic or otherwise. And um, so I've just been, and, and I mean, the icing on that cake is I realized that that's not compatible with most of the hockey community because they just, for the most part, aren't super into empathy or emotional intelligence. And that's how I was so successful um, in it was by, by shutting down my emotions and making fun of the people who, who allowed themselves to be vulnerable, but it, it turned out that I was miserable. And, um, so I ended up having to, you know, move away from hockey because it just didn't suit my lifestyle anymore. Also, um, I was getting tired of the lack of movement in terms of progress for the queer community. That was tiring for me. Felt like I was banging my head against a brick wall. Um, so it, it was time to, to get out and, I'm slowly learning how to make hockey work for me um, and how to still love it, but on my terms while being myself. Um, and I mean, that that's still a new process for me, but um, that's where I'm at. That's the exact uh, kind of like mindset that happened to me where I said this year where it great, greatly accelerated. It was, you know, even on this, everything I knew about mental health, I was publicly speaking about it. I was doing all these things. It was the fact that I was never doing it for myself. It was, I was game changer. Yeah. I was trying to be better (laughs) to attract a partner or I was trying to be better. So I looked like I looked better online or like I I gave off a persona, but you're so right. It's once I was like, I'm going to heal for myself and I'm going to quote unquote, love me or just work on that process. Like the amount, of, and that's that's what inspired this whole new journey for me of of this redefining of masculinity. It was that fact that there's two. I I found musicals to be extremely beneficial for my mental mm-hmm. health, which was something I never really was into. I love before. it. Like I'm a like I'm a metalhead. Like I love metal, and so here I am, like singing Dear Evan Hansen at the top of my lungs. <laughs> yes, the greatest showman. <laughs> Um, you know, like I, the last year, like the greatest showman soundtrack was like on my top Spotify list. And I was just so happier. I was just happier by doing that. Yeah. It's so that realization. And it was the Harry Styles wearing a dress and everybody like so mad about it. Right. Like this is, this is ridiculous people. Why are we mad about this? Harry Styles is a sexual icon. Like he yeah. is, we, no matter what he's wearing. <laughs> yeah. Like this is ridiculous. And it was just, but it was the start of. I feel so much better living for myself. I want to try to help young men, especially. I want to help everybody, but young men like reach that journey, like instead of later in life where like where I had to figure it out for myself. Yeah. Absolutely. Talk about it. It um, I mean, I don't know about you, but it ended up inspiring some pretty difficult conversations with my mom about how I was parented. 
Um, mm. My father passed away in 2014, so I didn't get to address that with him. But um, I realized that I kind of only got into hockey in order to get his approval because we didn't have an emotional relationship. Um, I have had to distance myself from friends. Um, the friends who in family who did stick around had to stick around while I went through some weird shit trying to, to figure out myself. Uh, at one point in the middle of all this, uh, I, my therapist discovered I have attention deficit disorder. Mm. Uh, <laughs> um, we just, we realized, you know, there came a time where I felt happy enough to get off of, and I was on a cocktail. I was on an antidepressant an anti anxiety and an antipsychotic, and that didn't feel great. Mm -hmm. Um, but there was a time where I felt good enough to get off of those, but still like I was a mess inside, especially in my job. And I thought it was still like me trying to disassociate from hockey culture and being miserable. But by then I had changed my research to, to my student athlete stuff. And, um, eventually he started asking me questions that like insulted me at first because he was like, so like, is your bedroom messy? And I was like, yeah, my bedroom's messy, but I'm super smart. I have other things to do than clean my room. <laughs> and, uh, like he was like, do you interrupt people during conversation? And I was like, yeah, but I have important things to say, like just completely blind. Right. And he was like, do you like have, can you go more than 15 minutes without checking your phone? And I said, no, but nobody can go more than 15 minutes. Like just fighting, 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 not understanding why he was asking these questions. And eventually he was like, I, I like severely think you have attention deficit disorder and we can manage this and probably make you an even better person. Uh, and that, that's what happened. Um, I, I spoke to my family doctor fast forward. I ended up on medication and, um, so much more capable of having empathy for others, so much more present in my relationships with others and in my conversations, more present in my job. And, um, you know, it, I try not to dwell on it too much, but I do look back on, on the 33 years leading up to that and be like, what if someone would have caught this like way earlier? Um, cause you know, it, it's just stupid stuff. Like I look back on my partners being like, I asked you to do something like five times, like take out the garbage or do the dishes or something. And like, you just didn't do it. So are you an asshole or is there something wrong with you? And I wouldn't always take the asshole option because that, that's all I could come up with. Right. Is I'm just not a good person. Um, so yeah, like in, it was an incredible change. Um, and, and that got me into reading about, you know, how underdiagnosed ADD is among women for a bunch of reasons. Mm -hmm. And so that's been its whole other journey. <laughs> was that diagnosis in a way like validating? Was it kind of like a light bulb moment in a way where you're just like, ah! like and like everything just all of a sudden comes together and, and like you're, it just kind of like clears everything for you? Because I've, I've talked to people not only about being diagnosed with ADHD or ADD, but also just searching trying to figure out what's wrong and then finally find like having someone listen or have someone take that opportunity and then give you a proper diagnosis and like just the weight that just kind of like unravels was it a similar situation for you it, for me it's an onion there are layers um i i you know my first layer was when i was diagnosed with depression and it went in what 2015 and it was like okay there's an explanation for what's wrong with you sort of and then you get deeper and then I was diagnosed with an eating disorder and it was like okay there you know there's you know we have put a name to something so there is a bit of relief there mm -hmm. but it still wasn't you know and then like I ended up divorced <laughs> and it was mm -hmm. like 
okay, so I, I wasn't in the right place. I shouldn't have been in that marriage. And that's a bit of relief, but there's still some, you know, there was always like, I was, there's still, you know, the core of that onion. And um, then, you know, it was like, oh, okay, you don't know emotional intelligence. Let's learn all about psychology. And that was a very big layer and a big relief. And um, the next thing was the ADD diagnosis. And it was a very big layer, but it was still just part of a process. And um, the, the latest thing for me that is helping me peel back more layers. Um, and I, like, I'm going to tell you what's at my center. I've got all of this. I just realized what's at my center. But um, the next thing for me was actually spirituality, which was weird because mm. I was so anti-religion. And I, I mean, I still kind of am. Um, but just learning to... Um, be open to other ways of interpreting the world. So that meant mm -hmm. that I pushed myself to try Reiki and I looked into human design and now I do breath work. And, um, you know, I don't, I don't think I have spirit guides or, or anything like that. I don't work with archangels or, or, you know, like I, I, I'm still learning about all of it and I don't know that all of it's for me, but it, it has certainly like learning about spirituality and, and, um, just the difference between satisfying your mind and your body and satisfying your soul, um, has been another layer for me. And I've realized that what's at the center is my authentic self. It's literally me. Uh, I, <laughs> I have had to, to go through all of these things to literally find out who I am without the input of everything and everyone. And, I mean, there might be more layers, you know, there, are, you, you really have to get down to a sliver in the middle of an onion. And I don't really know how big my onion is necessarily, but um, so there was never a moment where like everything sort of lifted off me and it all made sense, but there were several, there was a string of several moments where, you know, it, it just sort of peeled away and I saw more of myself, which is awesome. Mm -hmm. What you're saying resonates so much with me. Like that's exactly kind of the same process that I'm in currently and have been under. And especially when it comes to that spirit spirituality piece, because I think so much, especially in Western cultures, yeah. we associate spirituality, like you said, with religion or with the idea of angels and God. Mm -hmm. um, when you know, I've had energy healers on this podcast. I've had um, uh, an equine therapist. I've had um, a medium. I've had people talk about breath work and how powerful that can be. Like, I know, I mean, a little TMI, but one of my friends can like reach orgasm on breath work. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it, same thing where spirituality has been redefined in more of this connection with with energies and quote unquote vibes and how we feel about nature and the world and what it really means to be human rather than the association of like life, death, angels, God, devil type, you know, right. it's just, and while I don't, I don't necessarily meditate, um, but I'm not, a, I like, I would just, that's something I struggle with to like get into that mindset to meditate, but I like For sure. learning about all those things and different kinds of healing and just embracing more of a, just an energy approach, I guess, to life and healing yeah. and mental health and, and just how I interpret the rest of the world around me. Um, yes. it, the, it's the perspective shift, which has been key. Like even on social media, when I see someone raging, I'm like, I'm like, I don't get mad anymore. I'm just like, okay, this person has some sort of 
I mean, they're struggling. They maybe they have a bad job, a bad marriage, you know, they were abused. It's whatever the reason may yeah. be. It's just like a completely different lens on which I interpret the rest of the world around me that has changed. Like it's just dramatically improved my mental health because now I'm not like the stress. I still stress, but like a lot of the stress is just like, eh, you know, I can't control that other person. So, you know, what yeah. can you do type, type behavior? What it comes down to for me is, um, you know, even like I've gotten, I've gotten, I know, you know, I've gotten into horoscopes lately too. <laughs> um, and it's been interesting because I never believed in horoscopes because mine never, ever applied to me. Uh, but now that I feel like I'm being exactly who I want to be, it is scary how much it applies to me. <laughs> uh, and, but, um, but those sorts of things, like the energy work and the breath work and horoscopes, human design, all of that, it, um, it has helped me have a more positive outlook. And I was talking to my therapist about it because obviously my therapist was like, so we do realize that there's absolutely no evidence for any of this. <laughs> like, yeah, no, I get that. But, uh, and he was like, but the thing is, if you are happier and you're not causing harm to yourself or to anyone else, um, then, you know, I, I can't really tell you not to do this stuff because it's helping you reach the exact goals that you're also trying to reach in my office. So who am I to, to judge that? And that was really eye opening for me. Um, and it helps me believe in magic a little bit more and mm. just, you know, um, and it, it has helped me. So another one of my big themes lately is giving up control to the universe because mm. much like hockey culture, I wanted to control everything mm. all the time. And that was permeating my relationships with other people, my career, my food, um, my body, my fitness. And, um, I have since realized, and I mean, I still struggle with it, um, very much in the thick of, of understanding mm -hmm. it, but I have since realized that if I let go of control, sometimes beautiful things happen and I'm okay. Um, and, and spirituality has kind of done that for me where, you know, if I see repeating fives somewhere, I don't necessarily think that means something, but I'm, I'm open to happy coincidences that just spark a bit of magic in my day and, and make me a little bit more positive and, and help me trust that the universe in whatever form it exists, no matter what anybody believes, like for the most part has my best interest in mind. And once in a while, it's okay to give up control and just see what happens. One of my favorite things. So like through at least the mental health community, I've made friends with a lot of people studying for their PhDs their scientists research in this field. And similar to you that like you're in academics, right? You're very science and evidence-based, yeah. um, but also has this, that other component, right? We were talking about horoscopes and, mm -hmm. you know, horoscopes are horoscopes, but I think there really is something to astrology, astronomy type behaviors. And you're not the only one who works in academics who goes into like who I've met, who also has this belief. And I, I was camping with someone who's studying their PhD and gut microbiome and everything. Cool. Um, and we were just, we were just talking about it. And the way she put it, I, I, I'm not even going to try to paraphrase it because I would just butcher it and make a fool of myself. <laughs> but it made a lot of sense because we were talking about how I'm a Taurus and an earth sign. And, and like, you look at horoscopes and of course I, I get all that, but I was like, be, it, a lot of it still applies and then when I was going through like this major depression a couple weeks ago which we kind of spoke about online yeah. like Mercury's in retrograde like a blood <laughs> moon like all these different things I'm like yeah I'm like I mean like everything you're saying like applies to what I was feeling so like 
is there something? And then when you think about how the moon pulls the tides in the, in the ocean and, you know, there's sun energy, like, it's just like, do we- It's a lot have, of physics. Uh, right, like, do we have scientific evidence? Like in some cases we do. So yeah. how much really, a, like, I think there's, I, to all that to say, there is something there. Do I fully believe in horoscopes? I'm not sure yet. I just discount them, <laughs> but there is 100%, I think something there with it all. And it does like, it does make a lot of sense in, in a lot of things. So like, I'm all for it now. And like, that's been an evolution of me <laughs> who is like, you know, this young anti-societal, like anarchist, like metalhead who's all like, to turning into this guy who's like, you know, much more like Zen. I'm like, oh yeah, cool. Like, tell me more about that. <laughs> no, I, I do think that's, and and that's just it is I think it, sh it should extend like, yeah, I mean, astrology is one thing, sure. But I think um, it, it should extend to our openness to lots of other things, right? Mm -hmm. Not, not just um, that. I think, I think, you know, the more that we are open to other possibilities, um, or to alternative truths, uh, even just alternative opinions sometimes, uh, the better off we are because, um, I mean, yeah, maybe we'll figure out that astrology is in fact a pile of garbage and, and that's okay. But I think the fact that we're open to it is what matters. I think, um, and the same goes with science. Like I will believe that the sky is blue until I wake up and it's not, right? Like I think having that, that, openness to change and to alternate explanations um, is important because it, and I mean, I mean, again, I'm not the scientist, um, but I think that probably speaks to the elasticity of the mind in mm -hmm. some ways um, in, in, you know, how that might benefit us in terms of aging, I would hope. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think, I mean, if, if astrology is the, the, the thing, great, but <laughs> if the bottom line is that you're, open to other people's experiences, other explanations, um, then that is what is key for me right yes. there. And uh, that like this whole process and the people who I know are in this process as well, and that's the key that it has opened the mind to different possibilities of living that yeah. no longer make, like it gives that empathy and that emotional intelligence you were talking about and it, like 100%. no longer makes me defensive when someone goes against my belief or that, right. that and it's almost that like it's turned to a point where I don't have a really a whole bunch of concrete beliefs other than just being a good person and amplifying others to make sure they're living a health and safe life like that's like kind of like in a general sense like that's like kind of like the baseline everywhere else I'm just like kind of like going with the flow I'm just like yeah yeah you know things like polyamory or and things like the spirituality like all those things which before I would have been like whoa like let's <laughs> yeah. slow down now I'm like oh yeah that's so cool like do I want to do it I don't know but I'm super interested and want to talk to you about it so it, it's like really cool stuff where are you now um like in this journey and then moving forward with like this new career path like, is this just like an ongoing evolution, like process where you're just like learning more, taking more in and then just like, I want to share it with everybody and help people. Where am I now? So, <laughs> I mean, first of all, I like back when, like in the first year and a half of me being in therapy and, and sort of peeling back all of my layers, I used to look at it as I can't wait until the day that I don't have to do any of this crap mm -hmm. anymore because I will feel fine and, and. 
um, I realized I was looking at it the wrong way. I've now realized that this is who I am. So like, I need to have a bath once a week. I need to go to the ocean when I can to like calm down. I need to read, well, not that I need, but I, I want to be reading a psychology book. I would like to go to therapy to talk about things. Um, I want to meditate. I want to do breath work. And it's not all of these things that I want to do so that I can get to a place where I'm normal again. It's like, no, this is my normal. Like when you ask me what my hobbies are now, like one of them is personal growth. Mm -hmm. Like that's just who I am now. Um, which, and if somebody doesn't like it too bad, it's just, I, you know, I, I get defensive about it still because I was in a, especially a hockey community, but also a family environment where if your interest was like personal growth, they'd be like, <laughs> what yeah um, we're a hippie, <laughs> like that type of stuff right yeah. <laughs> uh like where's your patchouli um <laughs> so, uh but yeah so I'm getting better at being like no this is actually a hobby of mine this is just who I am now personal growth is a thing that I'm going to be doing forever um and, and that's how I want it uh however uh my latest stop on this journey uh has been um confronting diet culture that's my newest newest mm. like I only really like opened up publicly about it yesterday on socials a little bit um I don't even think I opened up about it on Twitter because everything with Luke was was going on yeah. with his announcement but um I I still have lingering body image issues I've been slightly overweight or slightly to very overweight all my life um medically speaking um and um uh, like really still have some lingering negative self-talk problems with thinking I won't find a partner if I'm not thin. Um, and I have spent most of my adult life restricting, which means I can lose 20 to 30 pounds at a time. I exercise a lot. I enjoy physical activity. Normally that all comes back eventually because the way I eat isn't sustainable or I simply don't like it. Um, and so I challenged myself uh, to stop tracking my food for once and started just watching my weight increase uh, and, uh, and, and trying to sit with that discomfort um, and am reading now about how I have participated in diet culture um, because we, you know, a lot of us have, especially girls and women, our mothers were raised on it even more than we were. Mm -hmm. um, so really unlearning all those things that I thought were health that were had nothing to do with health and had more to do with beauty um and beauties in the eye of the beholder right so uh that's what I'm up to now is realizing that all of my before and after pictures um had nothing to do with health um realizing that my weight has nothing to do with health realizing that talking to everyone who will listen about my calories uh is, has nothing to do with health um, and um, just learning to not judge myself while also being cognizant of the fact that it's a health thing insofar as I have high blood pressure sometimes and I like eating McDonald's and there is a scientific connection there. And if I want to live a long life, then yeah, that's, that's not diet culture. That's, you know, you have to <laughs> kind of take that seriously and think about it. And, and I, I'm not there yet. Um, right now I'm just working on identifying all the beliefs I had that, that had nothing to do with health at all. That is a fascinating subject. And one, we will definitely have to revisit down the road <laughs> sure. because that is, I mean, that's a, a huge issue, especially right now. Like I, I, 
remember like my mom always going on Atkins and carbs are bad, but now we're into like the health industry with intermittent fasting and keto, Keto. you know, all these things that you could really categorize in ways of like as an eating disorder to reach maximum potential uh, of, of health. And you have very prominent figures with very large followings talking about certain things you know carnivore diets versus vegan like it's like I I remember having nutrition on I'm like why is this all so damn confusing like I just want (laughs) to be in good health and like eat foods I enjoy like I don't want to have to not eat from eight till eight you know like come on (laughs) so like I like like good for you for like trying to like get in and and tackle that subject because that is heavy and that comes from I struggle with body image issues and all those different things and it, it it's like it's such a difficult thing to navigate and so confusing so it's, I mean, it's definitely great. terrifying right now I, I gotta tell you it's not <laughs> it uh like it given that this is also the first week I'm opening up about it um because I don't I have always well it's the same with the mental health stuff like I have always considered myself to be someone who's body positive who's anti-diet and uh, I'm realizing that that I might've thought I was those things, but I, I wasn't actually And the same with the mental health. I might've thought I was an advocate and that I meant well, and that I understood, but in, in some ways I didn't. Um, so starting at the beginning. Yeah. It's all those things we internalize that we're just conditioned on that we never thought was an issue. And then all yeah. of a sudden now, as we learn, we're like, Oh, 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 shit. <laughs> oh. yeah. Um, Hi, guilty. Yeah, I get that. But you I mean to come full circle, like this journey you've been on and on all these things you've learned and, and how you continue to be an activist and advocate for certain things. I hope in some ways you're able to make hockey work for you and come in back into it and share this knowledge and help like grow it because like it's people like you and some of the people we mentioned before that like we need in the game to constantly like it's such a I, I hate it, but as an advocate, I get it. But like rely on you to like carry those conversations forward. And I yeah. get it's like it's such a huge weight to put on people, but like uh no, there's to ways me, we can make like, it work. That's a compliment. So thank you for saying that. Um, I appreciate that because um while yeah, it does sound like a responsibility, it means that you think I have something good to offer. Um and and that was, you know when folks started saying like, no, we miss you. Like there mm-hmm. are people who need you and, and no change isn't happening in ways you want it to, but, but that doesn't mean that you weren't welcome. Um, and, and I am figuring out ways to, to make it my own. So this week I also announced that I am uh, a co-investigator on a women's hockey study. So that has been my, my first little foray back into it. Um, my colleague made sure that I was feeling ready to, to jump in. And, and so that I'm getting my toes wet there. Um, and I, like Brock and I have, have projects too, that we're working mm. on that I, I can't talk about yet, but I'm super excited about them. And, and so, yeah, I, I am finding ways to make it work. I think because I have that self-confidence now where I am now able to say if who I am doesn't work for whomever in the hockey community, that's actually too bad for them. Um, and that's not at all how I saw it before. Mm-hmm. So that change in perspective makes all the difference. It's a good thing that they don't val- like don't mesh because they're the people like you're the people in the game that we want. And like the other people are the ones who need to change. So that exactly. flip, of, flip of the script, it's like good because now we've identified the people like we're like, OK, like 
we don't like that person is like icky <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> it's right. just I didn't believe that that was the case for for a while and and now that is the case and um I'm glad to be here I'm glad to be back and and to make it my own and, and to have these conversations right it's these conversations that we're having right now are, are evidence that you know things are changing and and I think society doesn't have a choice but to be more like me in a lot of ways and like you in a lot of ways too right so um yeah I think it's great well this has been amazing I can't wait to see some of those projects coming forward um so when you're ready to announce them let me know and if I can help in any way like completely happy to become involved and help um, sure and I will be screaming it from the rooftops don't you worry <laughs> excellent um where can people follow you on social media website all that stuff to like keep track of all this stuff in your work right now the best place to find me is twitter and instagram both at dr cheryl mack cheryl mack well cheryl doctor thank you thank you so much this was a real treat and like i said you're one of my favorites so it was it's a great chance to finally get to meet you yeah, i'm glad we got to talk <laughs> perfect all right. I will see you on Twitter and Instagram. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, yes. You just, we just connected there, too. Now you need TikTok, actually. Now oh, gosh. TikTok. Oh, no. <laughs> add one more because TikTok is the place. <laughs> I got rid of Snapchat because it was just getting to be too much. <laughs> you take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes.